the last time, will you turn in your copy of God's Word to Hosea chapter 14? Uh, if you're using a... I'm not even going to tell you a page number. By now, you've figured out how to find it. Um, this, is, this is enough sermons in. Uh, I'm, you know, this isn't Obadiah, which has half a paragraph or whatever. Um, Hosea chapter uh, 14 would you give your attention to the reading of God's holy word? Uh, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Sorry, that thing went off. Um, take, uh, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, uh, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Uh, take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good. We will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan, finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive And his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is Discerning, let him know them, for the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, uh, that you would do for us even now what verse 14, um, what verse 9 of chapter 14 uh, wants you to do for us. Uh, Would you cause us to learn? Would you cause us to grow and understand? Not just so that we might have more knowledge, have more information, but that we might more and more walk in the ways of of our God and our King. All for his honor and his glory we ask it. Amen. Uh, you've you've just finished watching a movie. Uh, the closing credits start to scroll, and then there's a voice. Uh, characters from the movie start to talk. They're talking over the scrolling credits, right? The, you're watching the credits go by, but somebody who's been in the movie is is talking. Maybe they're giving you. Um, sort of insight into the happily ever after, which the movie itself didn't portray. Maybe they are giving you sort of an idea of perhaps an alternate ending, an alternate reality. Perhaps they're uh, explaining some detail that didn't actually come out in the movie. But there's just these voices, the scrolling credits going by and, and these voices talking just a little more. That's how chapter 14 feels to me. 
Because the reality is the movie is over. The movie of the book of Hosea is over and the credits are scrolling. And then we hear voices talking over the credits themselves, watching them go by and and giving us more information, talking more about uh, what is to come or perhaps what might come in a potential uh, reality uh, that still stands off in the future. And what we find in verses 1 to 3 is a picture of repenting. And the first voice you'll notice is Hosea's. Hosea's the one calling out to Israel, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Return to the Lord, verse 2. And he uses that word return and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, that word carries with it the idea of repentance. Not always, but more often than not, that's it's asking people, it's asking a wayward, departing, rebellious people to forsake and to return and to come back to the Lord their God. But notice he uses the name Israel. See, I sort of feel like as you finish chapter 13, it's almost like Israel's already defeated. This is why verse chapter 14 feels like the closing credits of a movie to me. Israel is over. Assyria won. The smoke still rises from the collapse of walls and buildings and houses. The people are still migrating towards Assyria or wherever looking for a place to live. The doom of Israel as a nation is so sure and certain at the end of chapter 13 that that chapter 14 almost feels like it's already been done. Well, then why is he calling to Israel to return to the Lord? If Israel has already lost, why use that name Israel? Well, the reality is we do this. We talk about the church as the institution the entity, the thing that is the church. But we also talk about the church and we mean the people that belong to it, wherever they may be. We talk about the church gathered. We also talk about the church scattered. And so just because the people of Israel aren't in the nation of Israel any longer, they're still Israel. And that's what he has in mind. He's not calling a nation to return to God. He's calling the people that belong to that nation to ret- in other words, it's it ceased to be corporate or national and it's become individual. And so he calls to Israel to the, to return to the Lord your God. He can call them to repentance because the people not just as a nation but the people as people as individuals need To repent, they are guilty, Uh, they've broken God's law, they deserve condemnation, and so he calls them to return to the Lord. And that's, that's what he has in mind here in this call. But notice in these first three verses, there really are two aspects, there's two parts, and we've done this in Sunday school recently actually, but there's two sort of aspects to repentance to returning to the Lord notice 
First of all, that repentance is forsaking the old self. Did you notice verse 3? Israel says something that is that contradicts what they have been saying for generations. Assyria will save us. The nations will save us. Egypt will save us. Edom will deliver us. We'll find deliverance in some nation somewhere around us. Notice what they say in verse 3. Assyria will not save us. They're they're turning away from the old self. They're giving up the the, the, what has sort of marked their character, their personality, their relationship with God for generations. For that matter, when they weren't relying on the nations, they were relying on their own army. We will not ride on horses. They were relying on their own king to deliver them. And so there's, there's, this, there's this call to return to the Lord. And this, this idea of returning, this idea of repenting, it requires us to turn away from the old sinful self. It requires us to turn our backs on the old me. To turn away from the things in which I have put my hope and my trust And my confidence. Money. I'm safe because I have enough money. I'm safe because I almost have enough money. And I'm pretty sure that maybe one day I'm going to get to that point where enough. I might actually say that's enough. Politics. Our elected officials. We're going to put our trust in this guy or this girl or this leader or this local or state or national politician to save us, to save me, to deliver the church. Stunning good looks. Okay, not in this room. But there's all sorts of things in which we will put our hope and our trust and our confidence. It will be the... I don't know, the thing that the, in which we find our significance and our hope and our expectation. And yet, Hosea, talking over the scrolling credits, calls to God's people, return to the Lord, hate and forsake the old man, turn away from, turn your backs on the person you've been. It's a call to return. It's a call to repent. To turn from something in which you have put your faith and trust. And whatever that something is that isn't God himself is misplaced trust. Which means, of course, if I turn from money to athletic prowess. If I turn from my hope and confidence in whatever, the politicians, and turn to stunning good looks instead, I'm still turning to the wrong thing. In other words, repentance isn't just turning from. It's not just 
turning your back on the things of this world that you think are going to save you or that you think are going to deliver you, that you think are going to offer you security in the ages to come. We turn from, but we also have to turn to. And what or whom we turn to matters. And so notice the command in verse 1. Return, O Israel. It's not just turn away from trusting in Assyria and horses and whatnot, but turn to the Lord your God. In fact, twice in those first two verses, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. And then verse 2, return to the Lord. And notice he's using that covenant name, Yahweh. The all capital letter Lord in your Bible is the English translator's way of telling you that's, the, that's not the generic Hebrew word master, Lord. It's the proper Hebrew word, Yahweh, God's covenant name. Of course, turning to God still means paying vows, right? It still means offering sacrifices. They've been offering sacrifices. They've been slaughtering animals. It's just that they've been offering sacrifices to Baal. They've been offering sacrifices to idols. They've been offering sacrifices to well, the things their hands have made. Notice Hosea doesn't say, and don't offer sacrifices. The whole old covenant system is rooted in offering, well, the blood of bulls and goats. Offering a, a lamb, sacrificing a, a lamb, a bull, a goat, a ram, a bird, depending on your wealth and the sin and the, the offering itself, the purpose, the function of the offering. But he calls them to continue offer sacrifices, can pay with bulls. You still need a, a blood sacrifice to deal with your sin problem. And so the, the issue isn't quit offering sacrifices. It's offer the right sacrifices to the right God. Come to Yahweh and offer the blood sacrifice to atone for your sin. For that matter, verse 3, they have been carving animals, people, statues. Statuettes, silver, wood, metal. And they've been making them and they look at them and say, that is my God. Did you notice that verse three? We will no more say our God to the works of our own hands. Go read. Here's your Sunday afternoon assignment. Isaiah 44. Isaiah mocks people. I mean, like he literally, we would do well to pay attention, to pick up on those times when the writers of scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit, mind you, are actually poking fun at our idols. And Isaiah 44 
is just such a time, except he's really not poking fun at our idols. He's poking fun at us for having them because we made them and therefore we're greater than they are. It's a fun chapter. It's a fun read. There's your Sunday afternoon assignment. But the point is, that's been Israel's practice. Israel has been making these idols and then bowing down and worshiping them and ascribing to these statues the glory that rightly belongs to Yahweh, to the one true God of heaven and earth. In other words, they're, they're actually guilty of breaking at least the first two commandments. That's the, those are the commandments that sort of stand out in chapter 14. And so we have as these, as Hosea's voice comes in over the closing credits, we have this picture of repenting. But then there's a second voice in verses 4 to 8. No longer Hosea's. Notice the first person singular pronouns. Ah, English grammar. Don't bring school up in here to reading the Bible. It's Sunday. Don't make me do schoolwork. You do English grammar every time you read the Bible. That first person singular pronoun isn't Hosea. And notice, I'm guessing most of your English translators closed the quotes at the end of verse 3 after mercy. Hosea can't heal their, their apostasy. Hosea can't and won't love them freely. He can't bless them the way verses 5 through 7 sort of picture this blessing. Notice the language of verse 4. The first voice, Hosea's voice, shows us a picture of repenting. The second voice in verses 4 through 8 give us a promise of forgiving. Israel's guilty. Israel has a lifetime of, well, of apostasy. Maybe you're thinking, hold on a second, that's a, that's a pretty serious word. That's a pretty serious accusation to, to level against Israel like this. But, but we literally just read, hey, don't call the idols that you make any longer our God. That's apostasy. That's the very definition of having other gods before him and worshiping him through images in ways not prescribed by him. And so Israel's actually guilty of apostasy, of leaving, of rebellion, of, of leaving God and turning to these idols. And that's been their pattern. And you sort of expect at that point, and this has been true of a number of chapters in Hosea, right? What does every sin deserve? Children's catechism. The wrath and curse of God. And, and a pattern of apostasy should mean squash. Right? You sort of expect, I mean... If I'm brutally honest with you, if I'm God, it means squash. Because at that point, I'm decided, you know what, that's just too much. I, and aren't you glad at that point that I'm not the one making this decision? God says, they repent, 
I will heal. And notice that there are three sort of elements of this forgiving. They're not, it's not chronological. It's not an order. There's three different sort of aspects to this forgiveness. First, he heals their apostasy. Look, Israel's been looking to other gods. That's what we do. We trust in things, all kinds of things. All kinds of things of this world. The works of our own hands and find value and worth and significance in those things rather than in him. We look to the things that we do or the things that we are or the things that we have and say these things will deliver us. And God says, I'm going to heal that abandonment. I'm going to heal that apostasy. I'm going to heal that, that rebellion. I'm going to heal that, that, that rebellion against me. In other words... It's really kind of a picture of our sanctification, isn't it? A lifetime of growing, of struggling, of wrestling with. Because that's Paul's picture in Romans 7. Here I am, a believer, and Paul at that. And I keep finding myself doing the things I don't want to do. And I want to honor and glorify God. And yet I still find myself doing these things that are not that. Paul in Romans 7 is saying, God is still about the business of healing my apostasy. The reality is this is a struggle. This is both the good news and the bad news, mind you. This is a struggle for the rest of your life. And at some level, you just go, oh, because that sounds like bad news. What makes it good news is that it is actually a struggle. There is tension. There is battle. There is growth, right? There is desire to do what is right and good. But it also means that it's the same struggle we all have together. Like, we never get to look at somebody across the room and go, man, I sure am glad I've got it all together and that person just really doesn't. I'm so much better than, than these guys and I'll, one day I'll be like them, but I'm not yet. But that's a, right? We never get to look down our noses yet. There's this struggle, this process, this sanctification, this life of healing apostasy. By the way, more grammar. Pay attention to that pronoun and the verb. This isn't Israel's work. It isn't your work. It doesn't say heal your apostasy implied second person singular subject. And then when you do, then come talk to me. No, God says, I, you repent and I will be about the work of healing you. I will be about the work of restoring you. There's a second part, a second sort of aspect of this forgiveness. And it's his commitment in verse 4 to love us freely. 
you know, there are, there are all sorts of views. And, and my guess is that we struggled with this from time to time. You ever beat yourself up over the head and kind of think, as bad as I am, if God loves me, it's surely begrudgingly. All right, look, you know I love you, I guess. Right? That's what we hear. That's the voice we hear. That somehow God's constrained to love us by some, I don't know, power? Some thing outside of Him that says, God, you have to love them. Do I really? We think that's how He loves us. I will love them freely. You do realize God is constrained by nothing except His own character. His own attributes. He constrains Himself. There is nothing outside of Him that can constrain Him. In fact, don't even get John 3.16 backwards. God sent His Son so that He might love the world. That's not how it's written. Jesus came precisely because He already loved. God loves freely. He's not constrained by anything other than His own Attributes and he commits his love without restraint and without constraint. And then there's a a third part of a third sort of aspect to this forgiveness. Because the reality is, sin demands judgment, sin requires, necessarily requires payment. And that payment has to be blood. And in fact, it has to be yours unless someone pays that debt for you. Unless there's someone worthy and willing to give himself for your atonement, for your restoration. Jesus on the cross satisfied God's justice. He satisfied the demands of the law in his life, in his perfect obedience. And he shed his blood, which means God's wrath is already satisfied. Do I need to remind you of the song we sang last week? I'm not going to be able to do it on the fly. Uh, when through grace in Christ our trust is, trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. His justice has been satisfied through the sacrifice of Christ. Look, this means, by the way, forgiveness isn't um, here's the rug. I'm going to lift it up and just kind of sweep it under there and we'll just pretend that doesn't exist. Right? Go clean your room. Run into your room. Gather all the clothes. Throw them under the bed. Make up the bed in such a way that the comforter hides the under the bed so nobody can see the pile of clothes under the bed. There. Ta-da. 
We'll pretend that mess isn't there. That's not how God deals with our sin. He doesn't pretend it didn't happen. He doesn't ignore it and look the other way. He says that has been paid for already. Jesus already shed his blood for that. And so because of the blood of Christ, he heals, he loves, his anger is turned from us. In fact, first John tells us that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. That debt has been paid. You, you may not realize this, but this actually is the most encouraging two paragraphs that we could hear, quite honestly. Guilty sinners invited to repent and promised to be forgiven. I don't, did you notice we had a confession of sin a few minutes ago? And, and then the thing that comes after our confession of sin, Harold kind of pointed it out. It's an assurance of pardon. It's not a boy, I sure hope he will of pardon. Boy, I sure would like to think this is good enough of pardon. No, it's an assurance. Why, why can we have that assurance? Why can we have that confidence? Because God has promised to forgive in Christ. And when we in Christ repent, confess our sin and turn to him, return to him, he promises to forgive. Two voices. Speaking over the closing credits, the first calls you to repentance. The second promises forgiveness. And then the credits finish and a quote pops up on the screen. And it's verse 9. The, the catch is, of course, you have to sit there long enough, right? For most of us, the credits roll and we're like, can I get out the door? There are enough movies out there now that you've learned, you've been trained to sit there through the credits. There are going to be outtakes, there's going to be something, there's going to be extra scenes, there's going to be a preview of something to come. Whatever the case may be, you're, you're, you're starting to grow in this a little bit. The problem is, for many of us, we don't stay long enough to get that last bit. And in some ways, that's how we handle God's word. We don't stick around long enough to do, to benefit from verse 9. To do what verse 9 urges us to do. Because notice, we have the picture of forgiveness, the promise of I mean, the picture of repentance, the promise of forgiveness, and then the prospect of remembering. Because notice the call, the command of verse 9. Learn from Hosea. Learn from Israel. Learn from God's promise of forgiveness to them. Honestly, it's easy to read the book of Hosea and laugh at Israel and think, those dummies. Right? I mean, who really does the things they were doing? 
Like we look back on them and think, I'm so much better than that. I'm so much smarter than that. I never would have been quite so dumb as to do the things they did. Right? Who actually makes a statue, sets it on the table, and then offers sacrifices to that? I would never. We mock Israel for being so foolish. But here's the thing. If that's our takeaway from Hosea, we're just as foolish. We've actually missed the point. We've actually missed the aim. Because wisdom doesn't say, look at those dummies. Wisdom says, I'm just as dumb. I'm just as needy. It may not be exactly the same thing, but it's the same thing. I'm still putting my faith and trust and hope in the things of this world, whatever those things might be. Wisdom, according to verse 9, learns. Wisdom looks in the mirror and when it walks away, doesn't forget what it saw. Wisdom remembers. Wisdom looks at Israel and reflects on itself and learns from Israel's sin and from God's promise. Because the reality is we're just as guilty. We're just as needy of our own repentance. But we also have just as much confidence in God's promise to forgive. Let his promise of forgiveness Ring in your ears. The wise man understands himself well enough to know that he needs to repent because he also is guilty. But the wise man also knows that God promises to forgive you just as he made that promise to Israel. And the reality is, verse 9, here's your other assignment. You can save this for tomorrow. Go read the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus writes his own version of verse 9 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The wise man understand, knows God's law, and desires to build his life on it. May God grant us the grace the wisdom to read God's word and when we walk away to remember so that it might do in us and for us exactly what God intends for it to do. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have promised forgiveness, that you have called us to repentance. Though we are unworthy of it, though uh, we certainly are undeserving of it, it's merely a reminder all over again that you save by grace. That our salvation is amazing. Your love for us is surprisingly amazing. Because we know we don't deserve it. Would you have those words, O Holy Spirit? ringing in our ears as we go throughout our days, weeks, years. To be reminded of the call to repentance and your loving arms waiting to embrace us when we do. That you love us freely. That you promise forgiveness. And would you heal our apostasy? Would we grow in our love for you and our hatred for the things of this world? 
We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.